Uh, somebody, I don't know who this is. Uh, well, put some great cartoons out there. I just, I just think they're wonderful. Dr. Janice Brain, the psychiatrist, primary song leader. I want you to take this prescription, and when you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> and, and this, I thought, was just great. Sister Barber, as your face is stuck like that, ever since we released you from primary presidency, we'd like to call you as Ward Greeter. <laughs> I love the look on your face. And then, not that we'd ever hear this one. Some people fear the second coming, not me. I look forward to that great and glorious day when my ex-husband finally gets what he deserves. We had some investigators in our ward yesterday, and, I, and it's like, oh, it's fast testimony meeting. Turns out. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started here if we can. Um, let's go to uh, DNC thirteen. I want to kind of go in reverse order. We're going to go DNC thirteen and then DNC eleven. Okay, what's the background? What's going on here? What is DNC 13? This is John the Baptist. Okay, now, a little bit of the backstory on this, just, just as a reminder. Uh, we talked about the fact that uh, when, when uh, Joseph and Oliver started translating the Book of Mormon, uh, remember that now they had removed the, the book of Lehi. They didn't go back and re-translate uh, that, so they started with Mosiah 1, and away they went. Okay, So that we know that by the time they got to early May, they were actually working their way through 3rd Nephi and the visit of the Savior. And when the Savior in those chapters is talking about baptism and the importance of baptism, and this is how to baptize, and make sure you use these words... Can you, can you picture that moment with Joseph and Oliver? You've been baptized? No, me? No? Yeah. Wow. Sounds like it's pretty important. Yeah. What should we, well, okay. And they felt inspired to then go ahead and... Uh, we have, let's, let's do what we've done before. We'll go out into the woods and pray and see if we, we would kind of like to be baptized. And we're not quite sure where to go from here. Okay. Uh, now, we have two accounts of this, uh, and, I, and I was going to put the other one up, but let me just tell you anyway, just from a point of fact. We have Joseph's account in, in the history of the church about what occurred. We also have Oliver's account. Oliver's account of this experience is much longer, yeah, it's much more detailed, and it has some beautiful details that we don't get in Joseph's. Joseph tends to be pretty succinct, because this is like, how many angels did they heavenly experiences that Joseph had up to this point. You know, Moroni, uh, first vision, who knows what else. How about for Oliver? Wow! That's an angel! Look, man! 
You know, this is like, this is only happening just a few weeks after he showed up. You know, 60 days earlier, he's teaching school in Palmyra. Suddenly he's out in the woods, and there's an angelic visitor standing right in front of him. So he's writing, this is, oh, wow. Okay, here's, here's some of what Oliver said about that occasion. Uh, he said that what, though that was a wonderful experience because we first heard the voice of the Savior. And what an experience it was to hear the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to us. So apparently, in some way, the Savior may have introduced John the Baptist, or that was the first thing they heard anyway, was the Savior speaking to them. What did he say to them? We have no idea. Oliver left that part out. It's one of those things, if you're going to journal, detail. <laughs> Put more stuff in it. But anyway, so they hear the Savior, and then here, standing in front of them, is this magnificent uh, being who is John the Baptist. Uh, it's comforting to know he is now uh, resurrected, and the head is right where it needs to be. <laughs> Last time we saw John the Baptist, he, he was on a platter, right? Let you know that resurrection works. In case you're wondering. Okay, now let's look at let's look at. Uh, somebody want to read verse three of this? Oh. I know it's corny. It's an old joke. It's it's like sometimes in in seminars they'll say, "I want you to turn around and shake the hand of the person behind you." And everybody turns around and he goes, "Gotcha!" Because they're all looking at somebody else's back. has nothing to do with it. Just Okay, verse 1. Oliver said that, again, this is his first experience in front of an angel. He is doing what most people do when an angel first shows up. It's kind of like, ah, it's an angel kind of thing. Except for Joseph, he knew what was, what was coming. Oliver didn't. Oliver was pretty nervous. He was pretty scared by the fact that this angel had showed up until he hears these words. Upon you, my what? Fellow servants. What's he, what's he being told? You're one of us. You're one of, us. You're one of me. A fellow servant. We are, we are the same. Can you imagine having that kind of being stand in front of you saying, we're fellow servants. We are on the same level. We're both in this service of this king and this gospel and this cause. We're together. How comforting would that be? I just think that would be magnificent. Remember, the Savior says, Henceforth, I'll no longer call you servants, but I will call you friends. There is that congeniality that comes among those that are in the service of the Lord together. Okay? It's the same thing I experience when I see old mission companions or people. We were in the trenches together. You know, upon you, my fellow servants. Um, then his terminology is very interesting here. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of... Oh, okay. Let's, let's say that how he might have said it and how it would have been known anciently. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Mashiach. Mashiach, the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? We know him as Jesus Christ. This is the God of the Old Testament. I'm going to confer the priesthood of Aaron. Okay. So this is Jehovah. In the name of Mashiach. Uh, it, is, it is the 
uh, again, when we were, uh, and we talked about in, uh, in the Mayan world, when you see Mashiach, he is the, he's the descending God. He is Quetzal, the, the Quetzal bird feather, Quattle, the, the snake. It is God who comes to earth. He is God who has descended down from the heavens. And Mashiach, Messiah, would be the God who would come down to earth and save his people. So I'm going to, in the name of this great God who will condescend, who, by the way, who will then see you as a fellow servant. He's going to come down, he's going to list you in the service of things. Isn't that great? So you get all of this wonderful symbolism, which of course Joseph and Oliver understood immediately. <laughs> Oliver still has to be going, it's an angel! I have no idea what he said. Except that he did. And Oliver remembered specifically a number of things that are going to be kind of important here. Okay? So, upon you my fellow servants in the name of Mashiach, in the name of Messiah, uh, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which we also know in and Aaron because he was of the, the tribe of Levi. So this is the Levitical priesthood. These are, this is the ordinance priesthood. Now, this priesthood has some interesting keys to it. There are going to be three of them that, that he's going to list. Okay? The very first one is the one that sometimes, if you think it through, you may not necessarily recognize why he would do this. So I'm going to, here is the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys to what? The ministering of angels. That sounds like kind of a biggie, shouldn't it? Shouldn't only high priests hold the keys to the ministering of angels? Apparently not. We're going to give it to the sons of Aaron. Okay, teacher. Why is it the Aaronic priesthood gets the keys of the ministering of angels? Why wouldn't that go to the Melchizedek priesthood? That's kind of a big one. You looked at your deacons lately? Why? Why? Why would these guys? Because they need it. <laughs> they need it. Why? <laughs> because they're deacons. <laughs> yes, that's why they live through deaconhood. They live through, live through scout camp without killing somebody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What? That's a, that's a good possibility because it's their job to watch over the church, and that's kind of we're going to give angels charge over you. Ooh, I like that one. Yeah. I taught this to my little ten year old Sunday. It was on the priesthood. Uh huh. Because if you read the Melchizedek priesthood, that's not in there. Now you get it at virtue of being the Ronic priesthood, but it, Melchizedek priesthood is going to be the keys to the mysteries of godliness, kind of thing. The Ronic priesthood is a preparatory priesthood. Preparatory for what? To receive the Melchizedek priesthood. Okay, and what else? To receive the Holy Ghost. Okay, now, now read ahead a little bit here. There are three keys. 
And it's going to be the key to the ministering of angels is the first one. The second one, and they're going to go in order. There's a, there's a sequentialness to this, if you, if you will. The keys of the ministry of angels, followed by gospel of repentance and baptism. You see the order? So now if you go back to the keys of the ministry of angels, you're going to see where the key of the ministry of angels falls in that order. You're going to be taught, you're going to repent, you're going to be baptized. Now, for just a second, hop over to, and I should have should have linked this. This can take me. Uh, let, let's remind ourselves. Go back over to Second Nephi thirty-one. We've read this one before. Um, verse thirteen. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if you'll follow the Son of God with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy, no deception, with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father, you're willing to take upon you by baptism, down according to His Word, then you shall receive the Holy Ghost, and then cometh the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. Now, once you've, once you've been baptized into the church, now you're a member, now what's your responsibility? Tell other people. That's right. If once I receive all of that, now I have a divine injunction to tell the good news of great joy to people out there. Okay, so what we're going to hear is, uh, then can you speak with what? The tongue of angels. When somebody listens to the gospel and the spirit bears witness it comes by the tongue of angels and angels in Bernie's chapter 32 we won't take time to go there angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost therefore they speak the word of Christ when somebody hears the gospel and the spirit bears witness it comes through the tongue of angels sometimes those angels are on the other side of the veil Alma, Paul, uh, uh, Joseph Smith. Angels come from the presence and stand in front of you and teach the gospel. Sometimes they are on this side of the veil. The Antichrist looked at the Ammon and the sons of Uzziah as these are angels that came to visit us. They come and brought the gospel. Most of the time, I believe, both are happening. If you are in a situation where you are speaking the words of Christ and you feel that spirit come up behind you, it's my belief that at that point you are exercising, listen closely, the gift of tongues of angels. It's my belief that when we talk about the gift of tongues, everybody who's ever had the gift of tongues, about that much is foreign language. The rest of it is the gift of tongues, which is the gift of tongues of angels, to speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, speak the words of Christ. Because when I do that, what occurs? If I, if I take somebody and I'm going to speak the words of Christ, I'm going to land, what's going to happen? And when the Holy Ghost testifies, then what? Then they convert. They're going to 
then repent. That's the second key. And then what's going to happen? Now that I know that I've repented, then what? Time to be baptized. So when we're talking about these keys being entrusted, that this is a this is a the the gift of uh, tongues of angels is to lead people to the ordinance, the outward ordinances. That's why it lives with the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. It's the outward ordinances, baptism, and all those kind of things. That makes sense. So what a great power this is to give to those people. Yeah. But not everyone who speaks with the gift of tongues has been ordained to the Aaronic priesthood. Oh, absolutely. Right. right. So why do they need to be ordained then to have that gift? But, but because if, let, let's say that you talk to one of your friends and you have the gift of tongues and you find yourself going, you know, what is the Mormon church? Well, you know, the, actually this, this church that you've been hearing about a lot, we believe that this church is the same church that the Savior established anciently. Then men, men changed it, so it needed to be brought back. That, that's who we believe we are. Do you believe in the Bible? Yeah, we wrote it. Kind of thing. It's, it's, our, it's, our, it's, it's part of us. We believe that's us. There. Wow. Okay. Now, if they're going to hear that, now they're going to be led, well, let me bring the missionaries uh, to maybe teach more of that, because their goal is to get you to the waters of baptism. Okay, so when actually the missionaries come and they teach, are they teaching by virtue of their Melchizedek priesthoodness? They're, pre they're, they're preaching and baptizing based on their Aaronic priesthoodness. The only reason we give missionaries the Melchizedek priesthood as they go out is so they can confer the gift of the Holy Ghost. They're preparing them for baptism. Okay? Yeah. 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 That's a good question. Uh, good, I don't know. Uh, because I think those keys are going to be invested. Here's the, the keys that give you the ability to uh, baptize. But I think by virtue of those keys, because within a organization, a ward, who now holds the keys? The bishop. And, and why does the bishop have it? Because he is the president of the Aaronic priesthood that holds the keys to then bring them in and provide the the place where the ordinances can take place so he can then come forward. Okay? But I think all of us get to participate in the power of, of gift of tongues. Yeah. But if, but if they hold keys, then would they become responsible for that? If they didn't, uh, if they, right. if they didn't open their mouth? Right. Whereas oh, yeah. we might be blessed with that on occasion when we need to yeah. Just because the bishop holds the keys or the keys are resting there, this this power exists with all of us. This is part of this whole process. But but bringing those keys forward then then empowers everybody else that may not necessarily hold the key. Yeah. You know, it makes sense why the deacons, teachers, and priests are given this this power and authority. And it's because essentially they have the stewardship over it and they conduct the, the same works of Yep. The sacrament, which is renewal of the covenant. And it's renewing that covenant that says, this is to help you continue to repent and to continue to have the Spirit back in your life again. Okay? And that's done by the... And at that point, there they are. They're standing there. They are, I guess in this place right here, they are the angels in your midst. They're the ones that are now providing the the 
outward ordinances that enable you to be ordained and then remember what you did at baptism. Okay? Yeah? Not to minimize the importance of the priesthood and, and all of that, but isn't it true? I mean, just like anyone, members, non-members alike, but let's talk about non-members for a moment, uh, can still have, have the influence of the Holy Ghost in their life to direct them as, as needed. They just don't have the blessing of constant Oh, okay, let, let, let me ask you. If you get if you get a pastor with a with a wonderful heart that is preaching in his congregation the words of Christ, and by a re result of his preaching, a spirit is felt, and people make a determination to be better people and to repent of the things that they've done. That ha hasn't he not? Hasn't he spoken the gift of tongues? I believe he has. That is not just simple. now. The, the key that's missing is their, then their ability to then be baptized with the right authority. But you see that gift of tongues. We're, we're not the only ones that possess the gift of tongues. It's those that are going to preach the words of Christ, and as a result of that, people come to Christ and become better people. Okay? We don't have the monopoly on that. All right. Uh, that's, any questions on, on the, this ordination process? Oh, by the way. The other side of this, and maybe this is the lead into this, um, they come back from this experience, they then baptize one another, and so now they've been baptized, they will be baptized again when the church is organized in 1830, uh, into the church, but now, now they're baptized, they have the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, who is the next person to get baptized? Anybody know? Samuel. Samuel. Two stories. <clears throat> And I've heard both sides of this. I don't know exactly which one is right. Uh, one story has Samuel being baptized. Because Samuel's down visiting uh, Joseph and Emma in Harmony, where this takes place. Uh, and this says within just a few days he's baptized uh, when he finds out what's happened. Uh, there's another one. I think it's Susan Easton Black said that Samuel jumped out of the, the woods on the, as they're on their way back from being baptized. Want to know where they went, and they taught him on the spot and baptized him on the spot. Okay, I don't know which one is right, but the, the bottom line is, is that Samuel is baptized very shortly after this. Okay, he gets really excited about this process. Okay, so now Samuel's baptized. What does he do? Time to go home. He goes back up to Palmyra and starts telling the family. You know what's happened? Joseph and Oliver saw John the Baptist. They got, they got the, the priesthood. They baptized one another. And they baptized me. And I can't tell you how great it is and how much love I'm feeling and what a marvelous experience that was. And I think that would get a reaction out of anybody. <laughs> Most pointedly, who? Hiram. And you're going to understand why this would fire higher. If you go to section 11. Um, oh, yeah, let me finish this with uh, Elder Oaks. The ministry of angels can can also be unseen. Angelic messages can be... Now listen closely. Angelic messages can be delivered by a voice or merely by thoughts or feelings communicated to the mind. If you have 
stood in sacrament meeting and bore your testimony or gave a talk and you really felt that spirit behind. It's telling you what's going on here. Most angelic communications are felt or heard rather than seen. We will be surprised at how many times along the way that we had angelic intervention in our life and we didn't know it. It is the tender mercies, yeah. Through the ironic priesthood ordinances of baptism and the sacrament, we are cleansed of our sins and promise that if we keep our covenants, we will always have His Spirit to be with us. And so it is that those who hold the ironic priesthood open the door for all church members who worthily partake of the sacrament to enjoy the companionship of the Spirit of the Lord and the ministering of angels. Isn't that cool? All right. Yeah. Back line 13, the very last sentence. Uh, hold, hold on to that last sentence. Okay. I realize, yeah, there's a part here we need to get to. Okay. Joseph Smith. This is one of those areas where my wife and I have a slight difference of opinion. To usher in the dispensation of the fullness of times, a dispensation incorporating the blessings, doctrine, and authority of all the former dispensations and embodying the restoration of all things, it was necessary that the Aaronic priesthood be restored. Because John the Baptist restored the Aaronic priesthood, the literal sons of Levi, descendants of the ancient Levites of Aaron, shall yet render priesthood service in this dispensation as the restoration progresses and the Lord directs through His first presidency. Here's one of those areas. Let me go back to uh, 13. And let me render this last line as <clears throat> Oliver Cowdery did. Because, again, Oliver Cowdery's rendition of this is much longer, and he remembers the words differently than Joseph did in a few places. Hello? Yeah, please. Ah! Perfect. Yeah? Um, a lot of the account is in the back in the Joseph Smith history. Yeah. You'll find it at the end of the Pro Great Price. There's Oliver Cowdery's uh, rendition of this. So let me, let me do it. Um, in Oliver's words. I confer this priesthood and authority, and then, so watch closely at the end of verse 1. Which shall remain on the earth that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Instead of until, Oliver saw it as that. In other words, part of why it's being restored is so that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offer of righteousness to the Lord. When will that happen? When does this offering occur? Uh, that's, that's one part, but this is specific. When will the sons of Levi offer this offering? To the 
Let me do this part because I think it sets up everything else. Verse ten. Who's got who's got verse ten? 
Five Okay. Not Behold, thou hast a gift, or thou shalt have a gift, if thou wilt desire me in faith, with an honest heart, believing in the power of Jesus Christ, or in my power which speak, speaketh unto me. Okay. Hiram's going to come down, and the first thing he's going to do, and I think this, I think this says a lot about these early brethren. I don't think they were just wanting a revelation just because that would be cool. Part of it was, I believe this is true. Find out from the Lord what he would have me do. I think this is, this speaks well of them. I want a revelation. I'm going to do what he asked me to do. So Hiram does the same thing. What should I do? And so that's where section 11 comes from. Behold, thou hast a gift. You may know what Hiram's gift was. That's really close. That's really close. He was the spokesman, wasn't he? No, he really wasn't. Oliver and Sidney did that, but Hiram was kind of more in the background. You're you're hitting all around it. Here's here is Joseph Fielding Smith. And as I, as I read this, I want you to think about people that you know. Certainly people I know. See if you know anybody else who has the gift of Hiram. Who has Hiram's gift. The Lord declared that Hiram Smith had a gift. By the way, Joseph Fielding Smith was the descendant of Hiram. Yeah. The Lord declared that Hiram Smith had a gift. The great gift which he possessed was that of a tender, sympathetic, merciful heart. The Lord on a later occasion said, Blessed is my servant Hiram, for I, the Lord, love him because of the integrity of his heart and because he loveth that which is right before me, saith the Lord. Not a very flashy gift. Know anybody like this? Could you look around your family or around your Relief Society or around your court and find people that have a tender, sympathetic, merciful heart? It's the gift of Hiram. This great gift was manifest in his jealous watch care over the prophet, lest some harm come to him. Remember in his last days, Joseph would say, uh, I'm going to Carthage. I've told Hiram to go. He won't. He wanted Hiram to take Emma uh, and uh, Mary Fielding uh, and go to Wisconsin and hide out because he knew the clouds were coming. Hiram would not go. Now, if you understand this, now you're getting, if you understand that this was Hiram, this was his, now the rest of this um, section ought to make sense to you, because you're going to understand something of who he is. Now look at verse 13 and 14. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hiram, I will impart unto you of my spirit, which shall enlighten your mind, which shall fill your soul with joy. And then shall ye know, or by this ye shall know, all things whatsoever you desire of me, which are pertaining unto things of righteousness, in faith believing in me, you shall receive. I never want to argue with somebody who has the gift of hiring in the things that they desire or the answers they might have gotten from the Lord. Because they have, I think they occupy a very tender spot in the Lord's heart and information can be given to a heart that is that prepared. Does that make sense? Okay, now. So here we go. Now, this is, this is the one that I think now goes to all of us. I think this is important. As we, as our hearts are softened, we become more tender. Now let's look at verse 12. Who's got verse 12? And now verily, verily, I say unto thee, put the trust in that spirit which leadeth to do good, yea, to do justly. Okay, now, as she reads this, I want you to, I want you to listen closely. And those of you who may have been listening when we were talking about the Book of Mormon... I want you to remember these phrases, okay? To do justly. Okay, one. To walk humbly. Yeah. To judge righteously. Yeah. And this is my spirit. Oh. We've seen this one before. Okay. Hold on to this one. Put your finger there. And now I want you to go back to Alma... 41. Put these in put these in context. Remember, this is Alma talking to Coriantum. We talked about this last year. Therefore, my son, 14. See that you are merciful unto your brethren. Yea, do what? Deal justly, judge righteously, and do good continually. And if you do these things, you'll have your reward. And what's the reward going to be? Mercy restored. Yeah, you shall have mercy. That mercy you extended to other people, well, what will happen to it? Be restored to you again. That's what the restoration of all things is. Your mercy restored back to you. If you have that loving, tender uh, heart of Hiram... That will be, will be, and you've extended that kind of love to others. He says, it's coming back. That's how you're going to be judged. And that's how you will be rewarded. You'll be rewarded based on your mercy because it'll be your mercy coming back. That's what the atonement does for you. Okay? And he's going to say, you shall have justice restored unto you again. You'll have righteous judgment restored unto you again. You shall have the good rewarded unto you again. This is the doctrine of, restora- of restoration. It is restored. This is how you're judged. You start looking at, look at all those bad things I've done. And we've, we've talked about this before. When you stand in front of the judgment bar, are you going to be judged based on what you've done or which, um, based on what you've become? What you have become. The sum total. 
good and bad, but look at what you've turned into as a result of the things you struggled with, your repentance, the mercy and everything is restored back to you. It's what you've become. Yeah. It's kind of like the ultimate that goes around and comes around. It's the ultimate in that. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, now if we go back then to um, DNC 11, that's what he's saying to him. Put your trust in the Spirit with, which leadeth to do good, yea, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously, and this is my Spirit, and, and it is your salvation, is what we should put in there. It is your judgment, because you'll be doing these things, they will be restored back to you. Right. I just think that's cool. Okay, now, in the time remaining, okay, now, before I step on, any questions on any of that? Does that make sense? Because this is coming to somebody with the gift of Hiram, if you will. That tender, loving, merciful heart. Okay? Now, based on that, then, here, here's, the, here's where this goes, I think. And let me preface it with this. Brother Millett, uh, who actually possessed at BYU the uh, chair of... I can't remember what they call it, Christian Understanding or, or something. Anyway, there was a specific chair. It, it was his job to be the liaison between kind of the church and other churches, doctrinally. A Baptist minister was in my office one day, and we were chatting about a number of things, including doctrine. He said to me, Bob... You people believe in such strange things. Like what, I said. He said, oh, for example, you believe in blood atonement. And that that affects Utah's insistence on retaining death by a firing squad. (laughs) I responded, no, we don't. He said, yes, you do. I know several statements by Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and Jedediah Grant that teach such things. I'm aware of these statements, I said. Okay, now, let me broaden this. Because this is this is oftentimes where our attacks come from. And someone will say, I have this quote from Brigham Young. So that you Mormons believe this. And let me give you another example. Was Jesus married? Probably. We don't know. But I've got quotes from uh, Heber C. Kimball that says he was. So do you believe it or not? He was one of your prophets. He taught at a general conference. Don't we, are we supposed to? How do, you, how do you know? What's our doctrine? Our doctrine is what the current prophets have stated about the subject. So Brigham Young was wrong. <laughs> we believe in a living church and yeah. continuing revelation and that... The gospel or the uh, 
our understanding grows over time, and we believe in the words of the current prophets and apostles as, as doctrine for our understanding at this time, which is different than some churches who have static doctrine that never changes. But these are these are prophets, though. They're speaking of the prophet. I'm not going to beat you over the head with Peter C. Kimball or Orson Pratt. Or they're actually speaking at that moment as a prophet, or if they're just talking in person. It's a general conference. Doesn't that count? Yeah. Well, I mean, take Ellen Packer's talk that was changed a couple conferences ago. Ah. When he spoke and what ended up in the inside was not exactly the same. So they're changing the words of a prophet? Yes. 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 Not they. Well, then how could that, you know? You see where they go with all of this? And, and so that's what I say. So I've got, I've got two Mormons, and one says Jesus was married, and one says he was not. So we, and, and that's what, by the way, that's another thing that this, this uh, minister friend, uh, Bob, blah, I can't remember his last name, anyway, has said, trying to find out what Mormons believe is like trying to nail jello to the wall. Because <laughs> uh, depending on who I talk to, they have a different answer. And, and if you ask that in, you know, in primary, I mean, don't even worry about it. Don't even think about it. Don't go to those things. Just go, oh, I don't want to understand. Okay. Yeah. Don't don't you study and ponder and pray and come up with your own revelation, and, and you can know things that are pertinent to you. You can, you can't. That's right. You can know those things. But again, when we are being beaten with church history, it's being, it's being quoted by, here's what all of these brethren said on all of these occasions, blood atonement is one of those. Do you guys believe it? No, we don't. Well, Brigham Young was teaching it. Don't you believe it? And then you've got to undermine Brigham, Brigham Young to then say, okay, yeah. something I had never voiced before. Yes, they were taught, but they do not represent the doctrine of the church. We believe in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ and that alone. My friend didn't skip a beat. What do you mean they don't represent the doctrine of your church? They were spoken by major church leaders. Okay? We have to separate doctrine from teachings. Yeah. The doctrine is that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of all mankind. There are teachings that have changed over the years. We now do uh, our temple 
practices are different than they were when they were first given by Joseph Smith. Oh. The doctrine hasn't changed. Oh, oh, oh. The teachings have changed. The, the, what, the websites love that one. You know, if this is an eternal endowment ceremony, how come it's been changed a number of times? Because the teachings can change. But, but the principles, the doctrine does not. Okay? The underlying doctrine. Okay, so, anybody confused yet? Yes. All right. Some would. Okay, so what is our doctrine? I want you to... And how are you going to know what doctrine is? Coming to somebody of, of Hiram's... Hiram's heart. Part of this rolling forward. And by the way, the early church, one of the reasons why they struggle so much is the early church... Oh my gosh, did they struggle with this kind of stuff? For instance, wait, wait till we get to uh, Kirkland. And they're trying to figure out how does the Holy Ghost work, you know? And you got you got people in in Kirtland sacrament meetings uh, sitting in the middle of the aisle, filled with the Spirit, going, "I'm going to the Lamanites! I'm going to the Lamanites!" You know? And you got another guy doing a backflip out a window, you know? And it's just like based on their traditions of how the Spirit works, they were just like, "What's all this stuff going on?" Because that's all they knew. That's the. Do you feel the spirit? Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and Joseph had to get some, get some uh, revelation about saying, "This is how the spirit works." <laughs> That's false traditions about all of that. Okay. So look at verse twenty-one. Seek not to declare my word. But first seek to obtain my word. And part of that would be to obtain doctrine. What is it that we believe? What is it that you believe? Now, and then when that happens, and here's the word, then shall your tongue be loosed and then when that's happening, we also know that is the tongue of angels, right? Now you're speaking by the Holy Ghost. Therefore, you're speaking the words of truth. Okay? Then will your tongue be loosed. Then if you shall desire, you will then have my spirit and my word. And we could say in that, in parentheses, the correct word. Yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. Now, that's why if we'll now hop up to verse 16. This is how we know what our doctrine is. And there are going to be four ways that we know what the doctrine is. Wait a little longer, Hiram. By the way, that waiting for him will be about a year. And and you'll see why in just a second. Wait a little longer until you shall have my what? And? 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 Cool. (laughs) Isn't that great? Okay, now, 
There are a couple of ways to look at this. Those are, in one way, those are all synonyms of one another, aren't they? All kind of striving, basically the same kind of thing. But for our purposes, trying to understand what is our doctrine, there are going to be four separate items that lead us to how do we know what our doctrine is. And this is really critical, by the way, when, when, if you're talking to your kids or youth or a new investigator or something, and we're trying to find out what is true, what is our doctrine, what do we believe, here's the blueprint. And, it, and it's really, really clear. How, how do we know our doctrine? Wait until you shall have... And then we're going to have sources for doctrine today. Where are we going to find this? You're going to have my word. Where do we find his word? In the scriptures. Sure. And in fact, he's going to say... Uh, where is it? Oh, look at verse 22. Hold your peace... Study my word, which hath got, gone forth among the children of man, meaning what? The Bible. Okay? Study the Bible. Uh, and also study my words, which shall come forth among the children of man, or that which is now translating. Book of Mormon. Okay? Uh, until you've obtained all of which I grant unto the children of men in this generation. And then all things shall be added thereunto. Like what? Okay. Pearl of great price. Doctrine and covenants. There are a lot of things that were added. Okay? So when we're wondering what, are, what is our doctrine, one of the first things that we do is we look to the Scriptures. And let's say Daniel was Jesus married. Okay. First of all, we're going to look in the scriptures. What do you find there? Not there. Okay. All right. Then he says, "You're going to my rock." Now, yeah. What is what is the rock? Revelation. Revelation two. Yeah. That revelation that passes through the prophets. So, so we are going to look at um, the prophets, specifically who? Current, modern day prophets. Okay. Uh, we were talking about uh, again. We we're talking earlier about probably the, in my lifetime, certainly the biggest doctrinal change I've ever been part of was uh, was on the priesthood. Okay? And I remember very clearly how many times, in fact on my mission, uh, I remember about six months, I, I finished my mission about five months ahead of the revelation. I had Christmas day with a, a wonderful black family in, in England. And they were just, and, and when we got to this doctrine, boy they struggled. How about the priesthood? No, and I gave my my best based on, you know, I'm going to look at Bruce R. McConkie and, and all these others trying to say, here is why it is, and it's about ham and someday and you know, right. And I walk and, and to be honest with you, I walked out of that and I was just heartbroken. Because I knew that they it was it was hard for them and it was hard for me. 
and boy, it just didn't make sense to me. I just could not, couldn't reconcile. Um, and then I remember very clearly, uh, and I mentioned this on the uh, that that morning, uh, going to play uh, golf with my uh, girlfriend's dad. And we're out there and everything. And as I, I dropped him off at home, I come riding up our street. And, and my mom, who was carrying a few extra pounds at that time of her life, is running down the sidewalk. And I thought, well, that's odd. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't like she's got her jogging clothes on or something. Like she's just running down the sidewalk. And I pulled over and I went, Mom, what are you doing? And she's like... There's been a revelation on the priesthood. My mother had gone berserkos. And I did what any knowledgeable, spirit-filled return mission, recent return mission. I opened the door and I said, Mom, that's ridiculous. Get in the car, we're going back. I just studied this thing, and it doesn't make any sense to me either. I know the camp is just, no, there's been a news conference, and President Kimball, and he's just freaking out. And we went back and flipped on the TV, and it was true. And I remember driving to work that night just sobbing, because I thought, this is, and getting such a, a, a spirit-filled confirmation that this was acceptable. Uh, but I remember shortly after that, uh, Bruce R. McConkie, uh, within uh, a few weeks, had to speak to the, uh, the religious faculty at BYU. And he stood in that group and he said, everything I've taught to this point was wrong. Everything that we've understood about this doctrine was false, and it changed last week. And he said, and everything we understand about Revelation, everything has been confirmed. And he says, we didn't, have, we didn't see angels. There was no vision of all that. But there was such an incredible, powerful confirmation that this was true. Well, I take it back. There was, there was one angelic visitor. And that was the Grand Richards who saw... Well, Wilford Woodrow, yeah, sitting there in his temple clothes. The last time this kind of a major change was taken place. But the key here is, is that prophets will speak based on what they understand. And these were, these were men of their time. And the current prophet will have the knowledge and the, and the flow of revelation at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and what a what a beautiful spirit and power that they they bring. And, but but again, you had to go back through all of that and say. So now the question is, then how come the priesthood wasn't extended earlier? And the answer to that is, we have no idea why. We just don't. Yeah. Remember, I think it was a week or two ago. Talked about how when we get an understanding of God, and then we answer our learning increases, that shatters, and there's a new Yes, yeah. So I think it's, it's 
for a little while. My word, my rock, my church, and my gospel. Where are you going to find uh, the gospel if you're going to learn about doctrine? In the, in the ordinances. You got that fast. It took me about three days. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe it's there. You cheated. What is there in the ordinances that will teach you of the doctrine? Because again, think about the, the part of this is priests of Levi and priests of Aaron. Here are the here are the, the ordinances, and part of the ordinances, how much of, of our endowment ceremony is covenant, and how much of that is education? It's mostly education, is it not? If we just did the covenants, we could probably do that that a temple session in about 10 minutes, right? We'd be out. But why is it we're going to spend so much time on education? Because we need to be taught. Yeah. <laughs> As we're constantly learning and changing and evolving and becoming better people. And so we'll be needing new and different information. Well, and not only that, I think that's true. She's saying as we learn, as we change, we need new information. And yet the, the endowment, for the most part, doesn't change. It very rarely changes. Sometimes it changes a couple things, but we're hearing the same thing over and over. Doesn't that get boring? What if, but each time we go, we're perhaps in a different place, right? And we're going with a different question. And if you go into an endowment session with lots and lots of questions, guess what? You will have heard the same thing over and over and over, and suddenly something goes and it jumps out and you go, was that even in there before? I've only heard that a thousand times. Wow! But it fit where we were in our own growth and our own development. And then we're taught. Even though it was part of that process. Yeah? I think that it, it, like, with this, it's important to look at. When you look at a doctrine, like the principle, like look at um, our church doctrine. Like look at the church doctrine. Like what is the doctrine we have on that? That has never changed. And it never will change. However, if you read different quotes of the different prophets over the years, the way we talk about it and the way we have we address it has changed drastically. Rastic. If you read the way that Spencer W. Kimball talked about it, oh. it's extremely harsh. And yeah. That was the way that society was at that time. But the doctrine still was the main thing, but we definitely yeah. Perfect, you know, that's probably the most current example. That, that's, that, that's perfect. And, and that is, it, it's the way that the church is addressing homosexuality these days. Whoa. In 10 years' time, this is President Monson, I think, behind the scenes, it, which, in a word, could, I, I, would, I would sum it up by saying, be nice. Drop the heavy, sinful rhetoric garbage and love them. The doctrine is still, is, we're not changing, you know, we're not going to be doing same-sex marriages in the temple. But love them. And recognize that they're struggling with something that they may not have any control over. In terms of what, how the feelings are now, how they express that, yeah, different deal. But they're, they're burdened with something that is very painful and very hard. As hard as anything I can think of. And the church is saying, love them. And it's miles different from what you would have... And so listen, when was the last time that you heard a scathing talk on homosexuality in general conference? 
And they even softened some of Elder Packer's stuff a little bit because it was even starting to approach that. But it was so mild compared to what you would have heard 20 years ago. Or even 10 years ago. Well, if, if you compare the talk that he gave in 1985 to the talk that he gave, it's totally Same different. church? Same I don't know. And, it, and it's the same man. And it's the same man. Right. I know. I know. Okay, so let me just let me just finish by saying this. Um, I believe that part of the pattern that we get from Hiram is is one in which you had one who, whose integrity and loving heart, his gift, if you will, put it in a place to be able to learn doctrine. And he was steady, and he was consistent, and he was not a flashy person, but he was kind of the power that was there. And after Oliver fell, it was Hiram that would step up, and it was Hiram that would go to Carthage instead of uh, Oliver. And to have stood in that room and stood where Hiram fell is always a very uh, humbling experience for me, uh, because... The, the spirit is grieved when someone that pure goes through that kind of trauma. But we get a chance to learn in, in 11. We get to learn from a very beautiful, humble man. And part of how he would learn doctrine and move forward is something that I, I learn from every day. And you look at his, Joseph's ancestry struggle. How Hiram's ancestry done. They, good enough, yeah... Joseph F., Joseph Fielding, uh, I mean prophets, and uh, Elder Ballard is uh, currently the one of that lineage that is in the 12th. So. I bury my testimony. This is good stuff. It is. Uh, and uh, pray that we can kind of take this to heart. Don't be, don't be troubled by the stuff that you might hear, be hearing in the next year. The church has nothing to hide. And you're going to see more and more stuff coming out out there, but we just have to have, be deeply rooted in knowing where our doctrine is. If you have a question, go to these sources, and then match that against what you're hearing. And especially match against what you feel when you're hearing these attacks. And you'll be just fine. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for the inspiring lesson. Um, our closing prayer will be by Enju Martinez. Yeah, that's well. That's right. <laughs>